0: law, policy, and markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Millbank Project Finance partner, Alec Borisov, and two experts on mining and battery metals from Pala Investments, Kate Southwell and Jessica Fung.
1: I think we need to take a step back and look at that structural theme of decarbonization. And it's not just electric vehicles. It's much, much broader than that.
0: Let's get to it. We are in the midst of an energy transition away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy and alternative fuels. Perhaps the greatest reductions in greenhouse gas emissions needed to combat climate change are expected to come from electrification of the transportation sector. Making intermittent resources like wind and solar power available to meet peak demand and enhance grid reliability requires more and more sophisticated energy storage. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory is developing fully integrated systems that connect EVs, transportation infrastructure, power grids, buildings, and renewable energy sources. What do all these green initiatives have in common? Batteries. A low-carbon future will be mineral-intensive because clean energy technologies need more materials than fossil fuel-based power generation technologies. Despite the push for more efficient energy use, Investments in sustainability and digitalization of the global economy increase demand for both power and raw materials. As GHGs go down, mining goes up. Demand for battery metals is rising fast worldwide. A recent World Bank report forecasted that production of metals such as lithium, cobalt, zinc, and graphite will need to increase by as much as 500% by 2050 to meet the exploding demand for batteries in EVs, energy storage, and electronic devices. Today, we'll take a deep dive into the world of battery metals with two guests from Swiss-based Pala Investments, Kate Southwell, the general counsel, and Jessica Fung, the head strategist, along with my partner, Alec Borisov from Millbank, an expert in financing mines and associated supply chains. Kate, Jessica, and Alec, Thanks very much for taking the time to get together today and talk about battery metals and what you're seeing in the industry.
1: Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks, Alan. Alec, let me start with you, because you've had a career in project finance going back that covered a lot of different sectors before you developed a special expertise in mining. Before we look at battery metals, which obviously are all the rage given the shift to electrification of mobility, energy storage for power grids and decarbonization, let's look at mining more broadly. Where are we in the commodity cycle?
2: Look, the, the commodity cycles are, are really what drive the industry, right? And I think it's one of the reasons why people have you know, always said, in order to play in this space, you have to have a strong stomach. You know, looking back over the last 10 to 15 years, it was fairly, you know, much, much slower. The number of deals happening were much lower. The number of restructurings and refinancings were much higher that trend has changed and even as recently as the beginning of this year there has been a huge surge in in the battery metals market and that's coinciding with a increase as well in sort of the traditional mining space
0: so jessica how do you segment the market
3: these are small niche commodity markets and until this idea of battery metals and battery raw materials really came into into play These were largely out of the purview of of mainstream markets. Now we are starting to see a lot more interest in them. And what this has done is, as Alec mentioned, it drove a lot of volatility over the last five years. You're right in that each commodity has its, you know, sort of trades to its own rhythm. And it depends a lot on the supply demand fundamentals for each market specifically, But generally speaking, the view right now is that we went through the hype cycle. It all kind of got washed out because the markets were a little bit early. But we are now in a period where this EV growth story is structural and it's embedded. And we're in it for the long haul. And so in that sense, I think we see a little bit more stability, and a structural reason for these prices to continue to move up. And that's what gets us very, very excited now over multiple years, as opposed to the hype cycle that we saw very, very quickly.
0: Thank you, Jessica. Kate, obviously, this is a global industry. If we look at the geography, lots of ink has been spilled about the DRC, the fact that so much of the world's cobalt currently is mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the conflicts there and the political unrest and violence has been a challenge, hence Conflict Metals uh, Regulation. And also the large role of China is both in mining and in processing of these. You've got a footprint in a lot of other places too, you know, from Nevada to Canada and elsewhere. How do you see the geography of sources for battery metals changing over the next, say, decade?
1: Good question. So as you say, you know, you're absolutely right. I think at least 60% of cobalt at the moment comes from the DRC. And that means that geographical issue is an issue for both investors and consumers. I think we all share the human rights concerns. And there has actually been tremendous... Improvement in terms of that lens being on the DRC. There's a lot of companies that are now engaging much more responsibly with that source of cobalt. Having said that, I think people are also looking at alternative geographies for sources. And there is, you know, in North America and Canada, a lot of potential cobalt sources as well. But I think the bigger thematic is this is becoming a strategic issue for governments. And many governments are already recognising that, you know, their inability to source these materials will become a massive issue if it's not already. And so that's driving trends like governments blocking deals in certain strategic commodities. And, you know, particularly in the European Union, an increased focus on how we build sustainable supply chain that includes the raw materials in that geography and the processing and the technology required for that. So so that is a massive structural thematic beyond the sourcing, which I think we all understand can't necessarily, we can't change where these deposits sit. But I think people are starting to think outside the box, particularly as Jessica says, you know, to the medium and long-term and where the future supplies of these materials are.
0: Yeah. And if you look at the risk and supply chain or supply chain security in particular is certainly a hot topic politically as well as economically. Alec, for lenders providing debt for either development of mines, development of processing facilities, we see it also, you know apart from mining all the way down the chain into EV. charging stations and battery plants for uh, car manufacturers, fixed energy storage and the rest. How do you see that supply chain risk affecting the availability or terms of, of debt for the mining projects in particular?
2: It's a good question. I think, you know, there's kind of two pieces to that. One is, you know, how the banks and, and the finance providers actually look to these risks, the risks of repayment, you know, reputational risks for being involved with with challenging projects and challenging locations, uh, market risk, obviously, if the product can't be offloaded. And that's one piece of the discussion. The other piece of the discussion, of course, is when we talk about finance providers, we're talking about a very different snapshot of what a finance provider is, right? And, and so on the one hand, you've got sort of the traditional You know banks right you've got commercial banks you've got agency lenders the typical senior debt you know concept and you know for sure they're going to be looking at who's the off taker on these on these minerals is the demand going to be there they're looking at the markets for ultimate use on the EV side on the battery storage side and looking at you know making sure that that all those profiles come together to make the debt repayable conversely you've also got other funds and investors and and you've got streamers and royalty purchasers and prepayment facilities and off-take facilities, all which are also available. What's particularly interesting, and, and this is really something over the last two years that we've seen, traditionally, it was the, the banks and really you know, a lot of agencies that were leading the drive to make sure that you know the ESG standards were met, that in any cases, whether it was equated principles or IC performance standards that those standards were met, we're now seeing the same demands coming in from the alternative finance providers, right? And so a lot of those streaming companies and royalty purchasers and others, They're also looking to make sure that those reputational standards are met. So while they may view the risks as to the economic viability of the projects through different lenses and different understandings of what the markets are and different understandings of what demand is, they're really starting to coalesce around the same principles when it comes to ESG and reputational matters.
0: So I'll, I want to come back to ESG in a moment, but just looking at political risk as it figures into this, and that can be positive, right? You, ha- you you can have, for example, government incentives like we see in France and Germany that are stimulating EV sales rather highly, although they're probably lagging behind on rolling out of charging networks. We see a discussion in the U.S. Congress now to expand tax credits for energy storage to help maintain reliability and lower greenhouse gas emissions on the electric a wholesale grid, just as we've done for renewable power, for wind and solar for years. Uh, So governments can create markets, but that also then runs the risk that policies may change. So Jessica, when you look at political risk, either on the supply side, where the mines are located, for the processing and the shipping in between, which could be impacted by trade policies, and then the political risk of changes either for or against electrification, for example, of uh, mobility and the use of battery storage generally. Where do you see the bigger risks and where are you more hopeful?
3: I think the bigger risks are actually on the supply side. Demand policy is really being driven by a structural desire by governments all over the world to focus on climate goals, period. And so, in order to achieve these goals, governments are very, very well aware that they need to put in a stable policy and they cannot backtrack on it. And so, one of the things that we follow very closely in terms of regulatory developments on that side is, are these programs actually coming into law? Are they being legislated and therefore effectively permanent? And so one of the most effective ones we've seen recently is in the EU, where the government had set average emission standards for all the OEMs to meet starting in 2020. And this was announced, you know, a number of years before so that the automakers had time to try to achieve this. Because it was enshrined in law, this was not something that was going to change. Although there was a little bit of a delay of believing that it was actually going to happen and believing that the OEMs could achieve it, guess what? Last year, almost every single OEM managed to almost achieve the emission targets, which were viewed as unachievable only a few years ago. So, this is what we need to see on the demand side. And we are seeing it, which is why there is quite a bit of comfort that these kinds of targets are being set and they need to be met. And so the risk is actually on the supply side where we are seeing, to Kate's point and, and to your point earlier, Alan, we are seeing these types of battery metals being, you know, the growth in supply is located in jurisdictions where it's very, very tough to have certainty in terms of regulations and rule of law.
0: Yeah. That raises a lot of really good issues. I wonder Kate, if you could maybe share your thoughts too on, this bigger question, people step back and they say, well, gee, we we want to be clean and green. So we're going to go out, we're going to buy an EV, we're going to buy an electric car, and it's going to have a battery in it. And they don't give a lot of thought to the fact that there is a whole chain before that where metals have to be extracted, they have to be processed. There is a carbon footprint associated with that. There are emissions uh, and, and, and uh, wastewater and air emissions issues around that. There are issues about recyclability versus waste creation at the end of the supply chain after the battery or the car that it's in has served its useful life. And how not just possible it is, but how economic it is to recycle and reuse. How clean is an electric car?
1: From our perspective, taking a long-term view... The energy efficiency that you're getting from an electric vehicle versus an ICE is obviously significant. It depends how long you own that electric vehicle for and how long you drive it for with zero emissions. The biggest part of the energy problem is the production of the battery. So that is where I think, you know, people are especially focused on understanding the emissions from the mining and processing. which again, smelting is naturally very energy intensive and from the battery production itself. I think Jessica will have some better stats than I do on that.
0: So Jessica, to you.
3: Kate is correct. The production of a battery actually has the same amount of emissions as producing an ICE car. And then you're producing the car itself for an electric vehicle. So the embedded emissions in an EV is twice as much as a regular car. However, as Kate said, Over the 10 to 12 years that you were driving a car with zero emissions, the reduction overall in emissions is anywhere from 25 to 80 percent compared to a regular car.
0: Right. So the net over the life cycle, you've actually displaced a whole lot of emissions uh, on a a net basis.
3: Exactly. Yes, because that is our climate goal is to reduce emissions overall and over many, many years.
1: I think consumers are starting to ask these questions about where each individual component of their iPhone or from their EV is coming from. So I do think that the manufacturers and in fact, the investors are becoming more sophisticated and understanding that there needs to be granularity in both the sourcing and the carbon footprint of the elements, as well as, you know, just whatever product you're buying. And the second point I would make is I think that it's a bigger thematic than electric vehicles. I mean, as we know, uh, copper, for example, is going to be used in a huge amount of the um, renewable energy infrastructure and the charging stations. There is this perennial debate around, you know, whether or not it's quote unquote energy efficient to actually manufacture an electric vehicle. I think we need to take a step back and look at that structural theme of decarbonization. And it's not just electric vehicles. It's much, much broader than that.
0: Let's come back to ESG and look at uh, Alec first from the point of view of disclosures and metrics. Because there are a lot of different standards out there, and I've I've talked about this in other contexts, but in this area in particular, there are different ways that ESG risks can be uh, approached and different ways that they can be disclosed, whether that's in offering documents, in the context of diligence for a, a, an M&A transaction, in conditions precedent representations that are in loan documents. Uh, how are you seeing ESG metrics? evolve? Are they still very scattered? Or are we going to start to see more consistency in how those topics are approached, especially on the environmental side? We'll stay with that for a moment. And then I do want to come back to the social and governance pieces too.
2: When you look back sort of, you know, historically over, you know, as as to how these types of projects used to get funded, what sort of standards would be applied by banks and and you know, finance providers that were looking at these markets... They would try to look as much as possible to local standards. I think way back, it was it was probably a hope that if we passed the local standards, that's going to be enough and you know, a tick-the-box kind of thing to say, hey, we're complying with local laws, so that should be enough. Th- that's obviously evolved a lot. And the standardization of what these institutions are really looking at, what the finance side of the deal is really guided. As I mentioned before, you've got things like equator principles, which which banks have, have coalesced around. You've got IFC principles. You've got sectoral guidance, mining uh, in particular. All of these pieces influence what, what the expectations are. You have traditional mining jurisdictions that have gotten a lot more diligent domestically about setting up sort of world-class types of standards that can be relied on you know, by, by these institutions. You start getting into other questions about the, the SG piece of the puzzle. I'll, I'll let you ask that question separately if you want.
0: Yeah, so, so let's let's look at the SG piece of the puzzle. And Kate, I know in your acquisitions, you know, the M&A is obviously a big part of what you do some of the companies you're buying may or may not have practices that either you wish to emulate across your other companies or that you kind of want to change because they're not so good once you invest. You mentioned before in the context of DRC and Mines issues around labor. I'm going to talk about you know, workforce development because certainly that is a an issue. And on the governance side, I think you know looking at uh, diversity is important. I mean, obviously there's lots of geographic diversity in the industry to begin with because global witness this discussion we're all from different places too, different countries but you know gender diversity in the mining sector especially when it comes to corporate boards is something where there's been a lot of change in the last few years but maybe not enough and maybe more you know is is to come how do you see that playing out where are we and what more needs to be done
1: i guess there's a couple of different points i mean one is the the value of being a turnaround specialist which is something that we do look for so we're not always looking for the esg stars i think if you can see a company that has great esg potential and there's value that we can add by helping them on that road particularly on the, on the um, smg sides weirdly mining is one of those sectors that actually on the ens i think they've been historically pretty good i mean mining projects need to go through a very robust environmental process to get their permits And they've also been talking about the social license to operate engagement with communities and the labor issues that you mentioned for a while, because as we've seen, particularly on the supply side, you know, labor issues are actually driving markets at the moment where there's strikes and unrest, particularly in South America. They're having a big impact on on the markets right now. So I think mining companies are acutely aware of the E and the S. I think on the G, there is room for improvement. I mean, there's room for improvement, frankly, across across the the board. But um, I think on the G, people are starting to get more focused on, on governance and, as you say, board competencies and, and diversity and seeing that more as a business resilience issue. I mean, we've seen that through COVID and frankly, through, through governments that have um, done well through COVID, it's been widely reported to be quite frequently led by, by women. But also, I think it's important to start linking management KPIs to more you know, tangible ESG metrics, particularly climate change. And that will be a real focus for us going forward. So where is the, the company tracking on a governance perspective now and what improvements can we help them go through that we think will really build that business resilience that will get us through whatever this current cycle is and, and well beyond? Because mining, unfortunately, you know, has always been a bit of a short term industry and, and it will always be cyclical. But I think mining companies are starting to see that beyond the life of the resource, they have a responsibility to build a business that benefits, you know, the communities in the countries that they're located in. And I think that's a hugely positive development.
0: So, Jessica, a lot of this question is how nimble can can mining companies be? And on the one hand, there's reactions to things that happen, sudden changes in markets and prices, new policies. We've talked about some of those things. Another is technology. China has talked about technologies for lithium-based batteries that do not include cobalt in the cathode, that there's there are other alternatives people have talked about with sodium. How, How do you approach this question of better being proactive versus being reactive and how nimble companies can be to address the resilience and the sustainability concerns and markets?
3: So unfortunately, I think mining companies have to be a bit reactionary because the materials that OEMs and battery manufacturers decide to use is based on their R&D. It's not based on talking to a mining company about whether or not they've got a project in XYZ commodity. It is driven by the R&D of the OEM who is trying to deliver safe, long range, good looking products. So Unfortunately, mining companies are not able to be particularly proactive from that front in terms of selecting what commodities they decide that they want to find deposits or or develop. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for the OEMs who are making these decisions, mining companies take years to develop a deposit and requires a lot of financing, which needs long line of sight for demand for that commodity. And so this is always the the balancing act that, that we have to deal with. I think, therefore, mining companies can't react very, very quickly because it does take years to develop these deposits. And, you know, the OEMs are starting to realize now, particularly with batteries, because these are very small niche markets where they're trying to find raw materials and realizing that, they're hitting a bit of a sustainability wall here. They weren't quite prepared for how tight these markets were going to be as they went on for their ambition. They're starting to realize that they need to have better communication with the upstream. So we are starting to see a lot of research and development come out. For example, as you mentioned, on removing cobalt from the battery. That is one area that gets a lot of headlines. But the reality is on the technology front that you need the cobalt in the battery to stabilize the nickel. Otherwise, the nickel runs too hot. You break the battery, thermal runaway, battery explosion, right? (laughs) This is kind of what happens in the end. So while I think it's a nice idea, and then the OEMs look at this and say, we just need more nickel. And then we have to get nervous about nickel. The reality is, is they have not really thought about, actually, there could be a tightness in the nickel market. It's not overly abundant and you also at the same time can't just R&D cobalt out of the battery tomorrow. And so it is a bit of a give and take. I have to say the miners tend to be on the short end of the stick because you know they are beholden to the technology that is being developed but at the same time this is very very new for OEMs to have to actually think about the upstream this is not something that they've had to deal with before so we're seeing a little bit not tension but we're seeing a little bit of interesting dynamics that are happening here that we've we've never seen before but typically the miners are beholden to the technology unfortunately
2: the question though is you know how quickly can the can the industry respond to the demand this is a very demand driven rise in, in markets right now. And there are certain well-placed companies that do have the access to the assets that they are able to you know, turn things back on. Obviously, it's not an overnight process, but you know they can move things fairly quickly. Certainly, we're seeing you know the demand from the finance side of this equation saying, we want to get involved in these projects. A, it's good business to be loaning money out because that's what we do. And B, it's great business to be associated with projects that are affiliated with this sort of green trend. And the jump from the hype cycle to the real cycle, and is this going to be a super cycle question? That's really the question for the next couple of years. As Jessica said, you're not going to change the technologies overnight. There is technology elasticity in the markets. I mean, there are different types of, as you mentioned, one train going lithium cobalt-free types of of batteries. You've got hydrogen cell technology, which is another potential alternative, but it doesn't take away from the importance of the core minerals that are there and the core technologies that are there that are really going to bridge this next ten-year gap of converting from you know, the fossil fuel combustion engines to fully electric cars, and, and the same goes for you know, battery storage projects and you know, everything that, that's relating to these components. There's a there are different options that will be available, but that's not a today story. That's a over the next ten years, and what does that mean for mining companies in particular that are used to cycles? That may only be a few years long anyway, right? And if the assets are there and the demand's there, they're going to ramp up as quickly as they can to meet those demands.
0: So I want to latch on to something you just mentioned. You say it's not a today story. It's over the next 10 years. And that's interesting to me because like if you look at batteries, we tend to lump all energy storage together. And that's really naive because, you know, the goals of an electric car manufacturer include not just voltage, not just don't blow up or catch fire not just be able to recharge and discharge on cycles that are kind of pretty different if you're driving a car than they would be if you just have a stand-up you know, battery in reserve at a building somewhere. But they also include lightweight. And that lightweight advantage, for example, for lithium-ion batteries is significant. I mean, you can, If you take out your old lead-acid battery from your car and put in a lithium-ion one, assuming the coating works, you're going to save 50 pounds right there. And there's other issues you know, around operations, but that's significant for a car and for performance and 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 efficiency if you're trying to do a battery storage plant that's stationary it's going to be backup for a building or it's going to be a part of a microgrid maybe it's providing support for intermittent resources like wind and solar so that you can use you know shift the time and use arbitrage to have that power available elsewhere weight is not your concern that can be heavy it maybe even can take up a lot of space but you certainly have other questions about its performance over time and will it degrade? Will it maintain the same capacity? Uh, how quickly can it react? Those are all different concerns, and they require different metals, different inputs. So Kate, when you're looking at markets, how much time are you spending segmenting the technologies of downstream you know users of these metals versus just overall looking at it as a commodity?
1: Yeah, I mean, as a business, we look at the entire supply chain. So we look at, you know, both upstream, but also what's happening across the value chain. So on the processing side, there are tremendous technology companies, mining services companies, AI developments that are all massively improving things like efficiency, energy efficiency, water use, et cetera. So I think we'd be remiss if we were only looking, you know, upstream and then as you go downstream you know you're also looking at recycling um there's a number of really innovative projects that i think you know have a great solution many of those unfortunately are a little f- further away than we'd like from the market so the recycling component of these battery material- materials is actually much much smaller than you'd expect which again is driving the demand story but you're absolutely right i mean i think it's a it's a very sophisticated value chain that's also changing tremendously quickly and it's and it's something that you know people are struggling to understand how this structural change can can be taking off and impacting businesses that you know previously made sense simply won't make sense in a couple of years
3: specifically we probably spend about 75% of the time thinking about the downstream It's only because the dynamics are changing so quickly. And so we do need to follow it much, much more closely to understand what are the risks actually to the upstream. The upstream, I'm not going to call it simple, but we've got a list of mines. We've got a list of projects. We know what they are, who owns them, how much it's going to cost to build them. And so really what changes the picture a lot is is the downstream. So we spend probably 75% of our time understanding what's going to happen there and trying to anticipate.
0: So let's look at the future. And again, this comes down to the, not to the today issue, the 10 year issue, but trend acceleration, kind of a buzzword, right? There are a lot of things that are happening much more quickly than we expected. And I think some of the resets and changes in energy usage coming out of the pandemic, which will differ, I'm sure, by, you know, in different countries and between emerging markets and developed markets too, are there trends that you see that will impact your business more quickly or differently? than you might have projected if I'd have asked you that question two years ago?
1: I think what COVID has done personally is just accelerated what we were probably expecting to see in five years time to, you know, potentially this year or next year. Certainly these, you know, unprecedented government stimuluses and policy changes that have come off the back of COVID are going to accelerate things tremendously. So that that creates opportunity It's a tricky one because obviously you can't predict the future. And if if we know anything now, it's that there's volatility and we need to, again, build resilience into the companies that we invest in so that they can survive through the next cycle and the next event that we all don't know what, what it is, but it's happening next year.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Jessica?
3: Yeah. I'd say that trend acceleration is really about thinking in one to two year clips and oh, we thought that that was going to happen probably by 2025. Looks like it'll get pulled forward by a couple of years. What, what does that mean? That's my very analytical way of thinking about trend acceleration. But what we tend to do as well is take a step back and just look at the world and understand that this is an undercurrent that has been happening for 30 years now. In 2005, we saw we had the Kyoto Protocol. In 2015, it was the Paris Agreement. This is, this is not new. And it's the same thing when we look at, you know, different parts of the world and think about, is there a trend acceleration there or is this just a bigger part of the of the undercurrent that has already been happening? And when we can look at it like that, it's easier for us to take a bit of a breath and just say, okay, where do we really see, for example, a super cycle going? And what are the structural trends that are driving this? Who is going to benefit from this going forward? Is it different than the last cycle? So that's that's really what we do is we take a step back. We understand these multi-decade currents. And then if things are shifting year to year, then obviously we have to adapt. But we're always making sure that we're not just falling into the momentum and following the hype up. We are really understanding all the structural changes that are happening.
0: That's good. Thank you. And Alec, when you look at the same question uh, of the future from the perspective of capital and capital sources how do you see that evolving
2: i think the answer is the capital is going to follow where the markets are right i mean it's, it's always it's always you know the, the money wants to follow where it can where it can make the money and these are trends that have been going on you know for a long time and if you look back you know historically over sort of major market shifts that have occurred over the last 15, 20 years. But you're looking at markets that evolved from LNG imports being the future of U.S. energy security to wind and solar being fringe industries that were you know just going to be you know, something to shale gas, to EV cars that actually were fun to look at and kind of almost fun to drive and didn't blow up. Not that they were, but those are trends that evolve. And so where's the capital going to be? Well, what, what's interesting here is you see companies and end producers and investors that historically may have said mining is is something we can't even think about. That's, you know, it's a dirty industry. It happens over there. It's you know something that's very, you know, potentially controversial. It's not going to look good on our publicity statements. And now you've got companies and investors that they may be in the car business. They may be in the renewable energy business. They're starting to say, we will look good being associated with this value chain. We're seeing this all over the market right now where institutions and firms that that historically would never have thought about investing in the space, are now you know very actively looking for both the ability to say that they're associated with it and also the ability to secure supply and make sure that they have a voice in that sort of three sixty story that you know we were talking about before, which is here's your end product. Tell me just how green this thing is. And that opens up a huge, huge range of of opportunities everywhere from the private equity shops to pension funds and other institutional investors to producers and off-takers and manufacturers, it's a completely opened up market in an industry that historically did not attract that much diversity of capital.
0: And and Kate, when you look at, you've been a general counsel of a private equity investor in this, you're a director of a TSX-listed publicly traded mining company. How do you see the diversity or the mix of capital sources evolving for mining companies, especially in this niche of battery metals?
1: Well, I mean thankfully as Alex says there's a tremendous range of options available in the sector now from you know traditional corporate debt and project finance to streams and other you know really innovative financial products. The focus I think really is on sustainable finance and people are being a bit more creative about linking their loans to you know ESG metrics to make sure that 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 financing will tick the boxes that Alex mentions and, you know, give them the certainty that the funds are being earmarked for a specific purpose and, and that company itself has a sustainable strategy. So, you know, I think thankfully we're in a slightly frothy market when you look at some of the, the more recent transactions, but the inflow of capital, you know, really demonstrates that this is a sector that's here to stay. And I mean, as we know, sustainable finance isn't going anywhere and people are working towards the SDGs that you know, we've got still got nine years to go. So I think while there's certainly a lot of uncertainty, there's also people who are building for resilience, at least for the next, you know, five to 10 years, which is very, very encouraging for the sector.
0: Good. Well, thank you. This has been a terrific conversation. I really appreciate it, Kate, Jessica and Alec. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.